Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. Here's why you want to listen through to the end of today's show. We're going to start out talking about things like biodiversity in your gut, what you can do with plants and how plants affect things, what parasites actually do for you and against you, and then we're actually going to cut over to some spiritual practice stuff. You're going to learn a new breathing exercise for a vagal term, how giving flowers to someone is actually a form of plant medicine, and you're also going to hear some things about ayahuasca and some of the other uses in indigenous cultures of these types of, uh, of medicines, including some of my own experiences. So it's a very broad-ranging interview. We change directions several times, and all of them are fascinating and interesting for you. So stick around to the end. You're going to love the entire episode. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that researchers just published a study showing a particular gut microbe can stop severe flu infections, at least if you're a mouse. They believe, though, this is kind of cool, that it's because the bacteria is breaking down flavonoids, which are the naturally occurring compounds in foods like black tea, red wine, blueberries, or dare I say, coffee. And this is one of the reasons in Headstrong I write about how it's important you have a diet that's rich in flavonoids, which are a type of polyphenol, but that you also have to have the right bacteria in your gut in order to use those flavonoids, which is kind of interesting because if you're eating antibiotic-tainted industrial meat, then you would be killing those things that live in your gut that eat the flavonoids. And who would have thought that polyphenols and flavonoids are actually prebiotics that feed your bacteria? It turns out they are signaling molecules, not just antioxidants, and they signal to the bacteria, which then signal to your bacteria, which are called your mitochondria. That's right, a quadrillion bacteria are running the show inside your body. Isn't that scary? Those little bastards are not looking out for your best interest. Anyway, I digress. As we get into today's show, since we're talking about polyphenols and cool stuff like that, there's something you probably don't know about, and it is Bulletproof Cacao Butter. If you're watching the YouTube channel, I'm holding it in front of my face, blatantly plugging it, and if you wanted to, you go to bulletproof.com slash YouTube and watch this show because all of the video channel stuff is there. That's bulletproof.com slash YouTube. Anyway, Bulletproof Cacao Butter is something that I've had on the site for a long time. Cacao butter is different than chocolate. What it is, it's just the fat from chocolate. The problem is that the way we make all chocolate is we ferment the chocolate and 80% of South American chocolate that was recently sampled had contamination with mold. That's because it's a jungle product. It's fermented in an area where they aren't controlling the microbes specifically. 
and 64% of the microbes that ferment chocolate create these mycotoxins that are directly toxic to your neurons and specifically to your mitochondria. It's the same species of, of uh, toxin-forming stuff that grows in coffee and wine and beer and things like that. That's why Bulletproof Coffee is lab-tested, why we change the process for coffee. So the, the so-called safe levels approved in some countries, in the US there oftentimes aren't even standards at all for these things, they can make you feel tired and sick and lethargic long before they become life-threatening. And that's why when you get the Bulletproof Cacao Butter, you get an optimized process that lets us create the chocolate without the toxins, and we're actually testing the stuff to make sure it's clean. So if I eat a lot of chocolate, I don't feel good. I eat other chocolate, I feel great. I don't like the hit and miss, and the cacao butter is doesn't look like chocolate, but it adds a mild chocolate flavor. So what I do with it is I use it in recipes, and I use it specifically, I'll put just a, maybe a teaspoon of it in my Bulletproof coffee, and then you drink the coffee, you get all the coffee flavor, and then about two seconds later, you get like this strong chocolate note at the end without tasting like you just had like a, a like a, a mocha or something like that. It's just a hint of chocolate. So it tastes fantastic. It's an interesting fatty acid profile. It's called Upgraded Cacao Butter. You can find it at bulletproof.com, and it's totally good. If you enjoyed this already, just check this out. We haven't even started the show yet. But if you enjoyed it, you could go on to the uh, channel on YouTube or iTunes and just leave a review, which is super cool. I'm always grateful if you're willing to do that. In the meantime, though, let's get into today's show. Today's guest is Dr. Maya Chitrit Klein. She's a very interesting woman. She's the author of The Dirt Cure, Healthy Food, Healthy Gut, Happy Child. And she's interesting because not only... Is she a neurologist? Uh, she's an herbalist, an urban farmer with eight chickens, each of whom has names. By the way, only urban farmers name their chickens because real farmers like me, we know that someone's going to eat a chicken every other day. So why would you name the chicken? But anyway, <laughs> that's just me. She's done a lot of work with indigenous communities and healers like in Ecuador and in South America and looked at plant-based medicine, the connection to nature, what it does to kids' brains, what it does to adults' brains. And really, how do we bring nature back into a medical practice? So she ties this integrative spiritual approach to movement, to nature, and to being a hardcore neurologist, which is kind of awesome and something that you will hear about pretty much nowhere else. So Dr. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you. How was that for an intro? <laughs> it was a pretty great intro. Thanks. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention that you've also been like on Dr. Oz, Sky News, NPR, The Telegraph. So you're like a famous, you know, the who's who because the dirt cure. I mean, how could you not be? One uh, uh, one of the things I like about you is that you talk real openly about kids stuff as well as adult stuff because the the things you're working with, like dirt and microbes and plant compounds, they really run the gamut. But what what lets you kind of run the, the line between kids stuff and adult stuff when so many people are just one or the other? Well, I think, you know, it's because in pediatric neurology, you actually are trained in both pediatrics and adult neurology, and then you specialize in pediatric neurology. So I, I did kind of basically the equivalent of two residencies, and that kind of got me started. But like, for me, I, you can probably tell I don't like to be pigeonholed, right? And I like to keep things interesting. So, um, you know, it kind of makes me think, though, that when you ask this question of my first day of my adult neurology residency after doing my years of pediatrics, some person had like a blood pressure of 240 over, you know, 110. And I was like, if this were a kid, they'd be dead. And I have no idea what to do because, uh, you know, it is kind of interesting to kind of walk in two worlds. But a lot of the things that apply to adults also apply to kids and vice versa. 
that is, it's totally true. You just have these different stages of development and anyone who's uh, who's a parent sort of sees what's going on with, oh, things are different now that they're this age versus that age. And in, in indigenous cultures, it seems like they really recognize that stuff. Um, and also the, the microbial exposure as a kid can shape who you are as an adult, but you can also do things uh, as an adult. So let's actually talk about dirt, because I mean, your book was about dirt and did did very very well. So you're an urban farmer, though. Like, what's the deal with dirt and kids, especially compare and contrast cities and like country kids like mine? Well, you know, the first thing I'll say is when I use the word dirt, like in the title of the book, I really meant three things. I meant being exposed to germs and microbes eating fresh food from healthy soil. And that has a lot to do with obviously the phytonutrients and things like that. And then finally being exposed to nature. So those three things that I kind of put under the category of dirt is really like the foundation of health. And that's true for kids and for adults. But as you said, kids have this, they're in this window period, essentially, where it's very, um, you know, it's very kind of formative for their entire lives and their entire health. So Um, just getting, I mean, the first thing is just getting exposed to bacteria, um, actually is transformative for the whole body, everything from the development of the gut to the development of the immune system to downstream from that, you know, um, healthy brain function and mood. Um, you know, and one of the things I think that, uh, people have kind of forgotten is that because, you know, we think being hygienic, or we've thought being hygienic was really the healthy way to be. And you know, if you're dirty, that was a bad thing. But now we've sanitized our lives in this way where we've, you know, sanitized our bodies using a lot of antibiotics, whether it's, you know, what our doctors give us, or, you know, food that we're eating, like from factory farmed animals, or even, you know, what's grown in fields is um, treated in that way. I, I was I was kind of wondering, so what's your favorite flavor of, of glyphosate? Is it the banana flavor or the mint flavor when we spray it on the soil? I was just, okay. So for people listening, if you don't know what glyphosate is, you've been under a rock, that's that nasty chemical that Monsanto makes that's sterilizing our soil and killing the microbes in the soil, yet Monsanto still claims that it has no effect on human health, despite the fact that our health is integrally tied to soil microbes. I don't know how you do that unless you're just evil, but hey, that's just me. So uh, that said, we shouldn't be eating that stuff. But uh, the reason I'm asking a question like that Dr. Maya, is how the heck does the average person who lives in a city get any access to microbes that have any semblance to what the indigenous people you've studied get access to? Like you, you go out in Central Park, there's no microbes in Central Park that you want. Like they're all like like recycled dog poop microbes. They're gross. Well, so actually, I don't I don't totally agree with you. I mean, I think okay. <laughs> we certainly can't compare what our exposure to microbes are to indigenous communities. And, you know, we've actually done studies. I mean, not personally me, but we have published studies on the diversity of microbes in um, the stool of, you know, people in indigenous communities, let's say in Ecuador, and they're more diverse exponentially than anything that we have in the Western world at this point. So it's true that we are not going to approximate that in our life. And for sure, you know, in our Western world kind of uh, paradigm. And for sure, being on a farm, as you're saying, well, how does that, how does that affect children? Um, we know that living on a farm, the microbes are far more biodiverse. And that's like basically 
the holy grail. You want the microbial biodiversity. When you're in an urban environment, though, you know, the, there are ways, even if they're not perfect, to go out to be in parks is a big one. Composting is another one, right? Like you want to just kind of be in an environment, kind of in a dirty microbial environment. Um, even being with other people is actually, right? Like we've seen some really great studies looking at young people who are out and more social and, you know, connecting with other people have more biodiverse gut and skin microbiomes than people who tend to be more like, you know, at home or being a hermit. So um, there are a lot of ways, I think, in cities that we can increase our microbial biodiversity, but it's certainly not simple. And how do we know we're getting the right microbial <laughs> biodiversity? Uh, th this has been uh, like a, an area of interest to me for years. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I got diversity, but now I've got E. coli, the bad E. coli, not the good E. coli. And now I've got clostridia. Oh, that's the bad clostridia, not the good clostridia, because there's good and bad. But like, like, so you can get all sorts of bacteria that you don't want, and you don't have much control. Uh, I mean, it, I, yeah. I've looked at a, there's a service called Viome, uh, V-I-O-M-E. I joined their advisory board. And um, that lets you get a test either two or four times a year to see what's going on in your gut. But we know you change what you eat and like go shake hands with uh, some different person. And two days later, you might have a, a, a new passenger that's good or bad. Like, like how the heck is someone going to manage that? Like, like, like oh. give me some, give me some hints here. What do I do? Well, I think, you know, the first um, kind of re reframe is to think of most bacteria as good or bad. I think for the most part, um, it's, it's not necessarily good or bad. It has to do with the health of your own body, your own gut that determines whether the, you know, the passengers are good or bad. Um, but not so much that there are definitely a few bad, bad, bad players, but really the key is when you have a lot, a lot, a lot of different communities of organisms, then it prevents any one organism from growing out of control. So it's not like we want to like, be we're we're never really free of like bad quote unquote bad organisms oh, yeah. right we have them all the time and we are filled with viruses and we are filled even many of us have parasites and actually what we're finding is these can benefit us and we have very synergistic relationships with them um, but it has to do with having that biodiversity that protects us you know because basically if you have only a few organisms it makes it a lot easier there's no checks and balances and one of them can grow out of control like clostridia or e coli and cause horrible problems when you have numerous communities that biodiversity is what's pr actually protective so i took rat tapeworm larva uh, every every couple of weeks for a year was that a good idea um, it depends on why you were doing it <laughs> it it just seemed like a, a sexy thing to do at the time no, uh, <laughs> I was doing it so that, that this part of Hellman therapy. So I was doing it to allow the the rat tapeworm larva. By the way, they can't actually turn into tapeworms inside you. That's why you use that species. Yep. Um, but I was doing it so that they could signal to my immune system to chill the heck out, so I could have like fewer allergies and things like that. I'm working on re reversing some food allergies I got from being uh, uh, to, in, in ketosis for too long without enough carbs to make a lining for my gut. Uh, so, I mean, like, like that's an example of something like that, but, but I, yeah, no, I mean, so you're, you're a neurologist and like you, you have access to all this stuff. I have access to stuff that, that normal people either wouldn't do or just don't have access to. And, 
what I'm looking for though is, all right, so maybe if you have a kid with autism or like a severe problem, you might do something like that. But I mean, are you just basically saying, look, our kids should go to the park and not wash their hands when they come home? Uh, like, like, how do I translate this into something that I can actually do? Well, I mean, to, to answer your question about the, the parasite, uh, the yeah. deactivated parasites, I mean, obviously you're aware that there's tremendous, you know, well, let's say growing and growing and soon to be very robust literature um, yeah. in that, that supports the idea that actually not only do these organisms chill out the immune system, like taking parasites, um, but actually they just by virtue of, of taking something like deactivated parasite eggs or like in some cases giving live hookworms, which is happening yeah. in academic I, centers. Oh, I took those too about yeah. 10 years ago. The, <laughs> these were pig whipworm eggs. Yeah. They, were, yep. they were delicious. Chukura, chukura. So yeah, so when we, when, we, when we take those, actually what's been measured is that the biodiversity of our gut flora skyrockets without adding in any bacteria. It's sort of this beautiful model of uh, biodiversity begets biodiversity. So, you know, it's, a, it's actually very interesting. And what we've seen is that, like, again, we had this idea that pa what parasitism is, right? Like one person is, is giving everything and the other one's taking everything. And what we're learning about parasitism is that actually it's probably a mutualism, that we're each getting something out of it, which is, which is pretty amazing and kind of turns the whole idea of parasitism on its head, you know, from a medical standpoint. There was also a recent book, uh, I want to call I think it was called Your Brain on Parasites or something. It made a really convincing case uh, by looking at animal biology that, for instance, the fish that fly, that swim up to the surface and show their bellies for the birds to eat them, 90% of those fish are, are basically infected with a parasite that causes that behavior because their parasite has to get the fish eaten so mm -hmm. it can reproduce in fish poop on land. And they cite like dozens of examples throughout the animal kingdom of where parasites are driving behavior of large mammals with the obvious theory being that like you and I are probably being driven by parasites right now and we don't know it. Do you believe um, that? I actually will say when I observe kids in my office, you know, um, especially like I see it in particular with kids with autism, but I, but not limited to that group where, um, they're sticking their hands in their pants a lot. Um, you know, that is very, very commonly going to be a kid who has uh, who has parasite issues. Is that called the Al Bundy parasite? <laughs> it should be. I wish doctors actually had more creative names for things. I think we should put you in charge of that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So you think that that's a behavior that's actually there to spread the parasite? Driven by parasites, right? Because the way we transmit parasites to one another is fecal oral. Right, so you put your hand in your pants, then you touch a doorknob. Someone else touches that doorknob, puts their hand in their mouth for whatever reason, and you know that's the way parasites are spread. And so that behavior is definitely, um, you know, I think driven by parasites. But certainly, I can say that from an anecdotal standpoint. You know, I don't know if it's been studied well. All right, so now we're we're proposing that we go out and we do things that give us a broad but ill-defined. A group of bacteria with right. the with the idea of saying more is better, but not necessarily looking at like ratios or percentages or specific genetics. Uh, what about okay? So, so now we've got bacteria, and we're saying some you're going to get some parasites in these practices as well, but they're probably good. Except wait a minute, last year mm. in one lovely salad, 
uh, at a nice hotel, I picked up a, a Giardia plus a brain-eating amoeba that took up residence in my gut. And yes, I'm going to talk about this on Bulletproof Radio in front of hundreds of thousands of people. I didn't have a solid poop for like, oh, about six months. It was pretty hellish. And this was like really unpleasant. Apparently the amoeba can drill through your gut lining, move into your brain and kill you. Fortunately, I guess I take a lot of collagen or whatever else when my gut lining held its integrity. And eventually after four experts later, we figured out what it was. Now, if I don't wash my hands, I go to Central Park or wherever the heck, wherever the heck else I go, farms and things like that, walk barefoot around chickens and God knows what else. Man, <laughs> that was not a positive experience for me. Mm-hmm. How, how is how are we to know that what we're doing is actually net beneficial versus, in this case, eating a salad from someone who didn't wash their hands? Um, right. <laughs> nope. Like what I do. Right. Right. Well, I think um, I think that. The first, the first thing is, I actually wouldn't argue that like we shouldn't wash our hands. That's just okay. thing number well, one. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I said that. What no, I no, you didn't. But I'm like, like, how do I get this? <laughs> what do I do? If we're washing, well, I do think you know. Just to get back to you're saying ill-defined yeah. bacteria, like we as humans kind of want to control everything that we can, but actually, like what we do, we we actually do best with um, what na- like what nature like nature just does better than we do. Let's put it that way. And actually of interest is right. This whole idea of fecal transplants. So it's not to say that stool is always bad. Um, it's just in that case, it's better done in a controlled way than just kind of like, you know, popping it in your mouth in a, in a, in a fancy salad. But, um, I <laughs> yuck. <laughs> I do think washing hands is important. Um, I just think we should be washing hands with soap and not using things like hand sanitizer, cutting back on things like bleach, you know, actually sponges, they make a big thing about how they're filled with bacteria. But we know now that people who have dishwashers tend to have more allergies than people who wash dishes with sponges, probably because the sponges tend to be more bacterially diverse, and actually we're having some exposure in that way. Using bleach actually seems to cause more infections more respiratory infections in certain studies than not using bleach. So really it has to do with keeping things clean, but in a, in a pretty moderate way and kind of doing the basics of hygiene without taking it as far as we've taken it. We always want to kind of swing the pendulum in this crazy direction, but I don't think being too far in either direction is the answer. But on the other hand, think about it. As a kid, I was rolling down hills. I was running around outside for hours. I didn't have a cell phone. My parents didn't know where I was. I was like making mud pies. I was standing. There was a creek near my house. I used to play there for hours by myself in the whatever dirty water was there. I probably used to have rainbows on top, so probably had gasoline too. I'm not necessarily recommending that, but <laughs> um, but you know, we were we were dirty as kids, and I didn't wash my hands in between every activity. I probably someone brought a snack. I probably popped that in my mouth. So. You know, I think that that there's definitely, you know, a balance, right? We do want to get dirty. And there is a reason, for instance, that babies have so much hand-to-mouth behavior while they're crawling on the floor. The the idea is that they're they're getting their hands dirty and and they're actually seeding their microbiome again and again and again during this really critical period. So they're getting these biodiverse organisms. So, you know, and kids were put outside and the floors used to be dirt floors. So 
you know, the idea is you don't want to have like a lot of fecal matter around. That's actually really problematic. If it's in your Mm -hmm. water, if it's in your soil, that's a problem. So that's to be avoided. And beyond that, you know, having some exposure and, you know, at the end of the day, great, wash yourself off, use soap, don't use all those chemicals. Like I use a bar of soap. People think that's so old fashioned, apparently. But all those washes and body washes and things actually kill off a lot of the beneficial organisms that are on our skin and in our bodies. Okay, so you don't want to sterilize everything, but you want to wash off some of it. Is that an accurate way to put it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. We want to have organisms living on our skin, right? Oh, absolutely. There's that company, Mother Dirt, that actually makes bacteria that you spray on your skin, right? Which which is kind of a, a cool thing. All right, so I'm not sure that if, I, if I'm a mom listening right now, I'm like, okay, I'm going to the airport tomorrow and I have an 18-month-old. Do I let them crawl around at the airport and then touch their face? I, for my kids, I was like, uh, no, airports are bad places to pick up microbial diversity probably. Um, but you know, if, if you're in a, in a park that doesn't seem like it's got like, too many uh, Tootsie Rolls left by dogs, that might, be, uh, that, that might be a good place to crawl around. But like, if you're in an urban environment, like, where, do you, where do you go? Like, what's the best place for this? I mean, I think going, I do think going to parks, you have to know where you're going, you know, you have to know where you are there, but um, I do think going to parks is probably like a great place. And, you know, if you're in an urban environment, getting out of that urban environment periodically is also incredibly, incredibly important. So go, go camping and get dirty. I I like that idea. Yeah. All right. So there's a, there's a reason to join the the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, maybe uh, just to get your kids some, some free probiotics other than the thousand dollar cost of the camping trip. But you know how that is. Well, you know, and there are, I mean, there are studies done on soil probiotics that are pretty incredible. So like, you know, mycobacterium vacai, for instance, um, boosts serotonin levels in the brain, similar to the levels that are found if you're taking SSRI antidepressants. So you can actually have like a massive serotonin boost that makes you feel good and improves your mood and improves even your cognition, you know, for the price of going and digging in your garden or making a mud pie with your kid. Um, and, and other studies have shown actually it reduces anxiety and it boosts cognition, like, you know, in animal studies. So it's pretty impressive. Like these little mice were completing difficult mazes in half the t- in twice, uh, twice as quickly and with half the anxiety of the other mice when they were fed this bacteria. That's pretty cool. Now, if I was to eat that bacteria, uh, is it gonna stick? Like, what, what do you have to do? One of the problems is that, at least for people who are relatively healthy, taking probiotics oftentimes is mm-hmm. shown to not do very much. Like, they, they, don't, they don't take up residence. So, right. if I wanted more of this stuff, what do I have to do? Well, basically, right, what they called it was a superhero effect. And they said the superhero effect lasted about three weeks, and then they needed another exposure. But this is, remember, an exposure to soil. So what, and because, you know, what they recommend is like gardening, you get a little bit in your nose, you know, or being outdoors, you get a little, you breathe a little in through your nose, you get a little bit on your hands and little cuts on your hands, you might eat some of it by accident. And those, those are the little ways you don't actually need a lot to have the benefit. So every three weeks is what they found in that particular study that they did. And what it comes down to is we need to have ongoing and con- you know ongoing repeated exposure to nature, exposure to soil, to to maintain the benefits that we derive from it. So you're going to get mad at me, but 
I, I'm just I'm considering that a very substantial percentage of the world population doesn't have access to clean soil. Okay, I live on an organic farm. Like, like my kids pick up sheep poop. So like I I, I am not in that, but okay. I know that the majority of people listening to this are going, what the heck? So can you just get a nasal spray with this cool stuff and just give yourself a pump every three months and just be done with it? Some muddy water in the nasal spray? Like like, like seriously? Like how are we gonna do this as for billions of people who don't you know aren't gonna get access to this? Is are you working on that? Are people working on this? Um, well, that doesn't make me mad. I can never be mad at you, Dave. But uh, <laughs> oh, I'm trying. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would say this. Like, I think that there are going to probably be a lot of ph- pharmaceutical ways. And I've been, you know, I've been contacted by different companies that are interested in developing these kinds of products. But um, but I think our our real goal is that you know is going to be to um, increase people's exposure to clean soil. And I know that sounds maybe pie in the sky, but that's what we really have to demand because the kind of benefits which are have been objectively measured that we get from being in contact with soil and being in contact with nature are so tremendous and so much beyond that little squirt of bacteria. Um, for all we know, oh, yeah. we need that bacteria, you know, to be maintained with other bacteria and tree bark. I don't know, but like, you know, the point is we need to kind of be out there and, and really getting dirty in a, in a real way, not just for that one bacteria, but for many other reasons. All right. We're, we're going to switch gears in a minute here to talk about some other like indigenous culture stuff. But first, all right, Elon Musk wants to send a colony to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. When you're on a spaceship, how do you know which microbes to bring with you? So I would say you, you go to your organic farm, <laughs> take a bucket or a number of buckets of soil, okay. and, you know, hopefully not right near where the sheep are pooping, and, uh, you know, just sprinkle a little bit of that in your food every day, and you're probably going to be getting a pretty good uh, biodiverse probiotic straight from nature. Uh, somehow I don't think that's what they're doing. Uh, one of the reasons I, I actually am a huge fan of colonizing other uh, other planets, and I think it'll happen in my lifetime. I also think that my lifetime is going to be longer than the average lifetime. 180 plus is my goal, and I'm actually working on that. So that said, I think that we are so f- clueless about replicating even somewhat of a natural environment that makes us thrive that it's going to be hard to go to other places unless we figure out the microbial diversity and avoiding, say, toxic fungus growing on your spaceship because that'll sort of kill you. Yeah. Uh, as well as getting our lighting and even our EMF environment to replicate what we naturally had on planet Earth because apparently we are plugged into our environment and we don't operate very well when we're not plugged into it. So, right. uh, and that's you know very much replicates uh, some of the thinking you're doing. I'm just guessing that we don't have the ability on any of the spaceships we have today to replicate the diverse uh, uh, environments of the the planet. Like, oh, here's our jungle section. Here's our desert section. You know, we're not going to bring the whole pharmacopoeia of the planet with us when we go somewhere. Uh, so, you know, what what are the minimum essential elements? I, I don't think anybody knows yet, but I, I certainly appreciate that you're looking into this and saying, what does this do? What does this do? But the interactions between the two, that's going to take some more learning, I think. You agree? Quite a, I think it's going to definitely take a lot of learning, and I'm going to be really curious what we'll be able to replicate. Um, because uh, there's definitely, I think, you know, and this probably does lead into our conversation about indigenous communities, but there is sort of this like innate intelligence, I believe, um, within nature 
that is very synergistic with us because we've evolved with all of these elements, water, air, you know, soil, trees, plants, all these different things, you know, over millennia, right? And so um, our bodies recognize, you know, our bodies, plant bodies, soil bodies, however you would talk about it in indigenous communities, all recognize each other. And I think it's going to be a, a real undertaking to try to replicate that. But, you know, I have no doubt that attempts will be made and interesting if they will be successful i'm definitely curious that sounded to me like you were saying they're not going to be successful did i hear you wrong mm. <laughs> <laughs> i i suspect that we can do it uh, my uh my understanding of things is that you know they're they're the environment is a very complex system and that we're definitely plugged into it. Our bodies listen to everything in the environment around us. And a lot of what, what keeps us going is that we are a Petri dish for the things that make our energy. And so if your Petri dish is clean and has the right nutrient broth, it can generally uh, generally succeed unless the environment the Petri dish is in is, doesn't work. You leave the Petri dish in the sun, it's probably not gonna work the same as if you put it in the fridge. So we need to account for things like that. But I'm guessing it's hackable enough that we can go somewhere and make interesting stuff happen. If not, I'm pretty sure some people will die trying. Yeah. In fact, I guarantee it. <laughs> I agree is, with you on that one. Yeah, that, that, is, the, that is what happens when you, uh, when you are an explorer, and it's happened throughout all of human history long before we had things like, you know, other than feet to go walking to see what was on the other side of the hill. It turns out there were tigers there. Yeah, too right. bad. So speaking of the other side of the hill, the other thing you do is you do a lot of work with indigenous cultures, plant-based medicines. I just finished my plant-based medicine. Uh, that would be coffee. Uh, <laughs> Mother Nature's original smart drug, along with, uh, say, tobacco, another well-studied smart drug. But your work takes you not just for microbes and microbial diversity and nutrition from these native cultures, but also into uh, some of the more spiritual stuff. Talk about what your work there as a neurologist has done. How has the, the spiritual side of indigenous practice affected your neurology practice and vice versa? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, I like to just be clear that, you know, as you're saying with... Um, you know, the idea of plant medicine, that it's a really diverse kind of um, category with many, many different ways to partake. So one, one kind of plant medicine that I talk about that I think is really accessible to people is the idea of giving flowers to people. A lot of people say, oh, I don't know anything about plant medicine. I don't know anything about herbs. I don't know anything about all of that. Um, you know, and so I always like to think about, you know, well, if you have, have you ever given anybody flowers? And Pretty much most people will say, yes, you've either given or received flowers. And, you know, we give flowers to people like when when we're happy, when we love them, when we want to congratulate them, when we're sad or, you know, we've experienced loss. And and the reason why we do that is because it transforms the way we feel. It makes us feel different. And um, so that's like actually a form, you know, in these communities, we would talk about it in a way like it's affecting you on your in your physical body, in your emotional body and in your, you know, spiritual body all all at the same time and and that transformative effect is actually what we would think of as a form of plant medicine. Obviously, you know, we can take it into like different kinds of herbs that we ingest including things like coffee and, you know, and beyond. Um, well, let's let's talk about flowers, right? Mm. 
say you set some flowers in front of someone. So there's an optical effect, like the different colors that come from the flowers. Some of the lights that is reflected is going to be uh, polarized. Some is not going to be polarized. You get the different frequencies, the different spectrums. Mm -hmm. Then you get the actual uh, pollen and you get the terpenes, which are shown to affect your gut microbes as well and things like that. You get the effect, the the psychological effect that happens. Oh, look, you know, beautiful flowers. I see beauty. I see nature. Uh, other stuff like that. So there's there's like a chemical thing. There's an optical thing. There may be an EMF thing that comes from flowers. I have no idea. And there's maybe bacteria or fungus that comes in on those. What about <laughs> scent? Right, that's going to go yeah. right into your limbic primitive brain mm-hmm. and trigger all kinds of memories and feelings and you know pleasure centers. Um, and speaking of you know. Um, you know, the, the different kinds of, of chemical effects. I mean, you know, that psychological effect of looking at nature really can't be underestimated because there have been several studies now where people just looking at nature, they, you know, let's say they're in a hospital post-surgically, they're looking at trees out the window versus a brick wall. They heal more quickly. They need less pain medication. They have fewer complications. They're discharged earlier, fewer negative notes and nurses charts, right? So like, it's a real, real thing, but yeah, you've got all those things. So it, it, it's just interesting, as a, a biohacker, like the environment around you uh, changes your biology. It changes on a lot of levels, like, oh look, flowers, but that's just the, the very highest level pattern of flowers that you're, you're seeing, but there's all sorts of effects underneath that. And if you, someone hands you plastic flowers, even if they're really good replicas, it doesn't work the same, right? Right. And it's it's quite it maybe in the background or something you'd see that but if you are if you turn your awareness up all the way you're like oh wait it doesn't it's not the same and you know it at, at a visceral level which, which is fascinating and something that I don't think is that well studied but it, it's a real effect. Now one of the other things that indigenous cultures pretty much all of them do is uh, how do I put this delicately they trip balls uh, was that delicate enough? <laughs> Uh, uh, so in other words, they use uh, hallucinogens uh, or hallucinogenic practices, uh, extended fasting, uh, isolation in a cave, eating strange forms of cactus, mushrooms, ayahuasca, uh, you know, pretty much every continent except for the, I think, except for the North Pole has uh, you know, DMT containing plant compounds and, and almost every single practice, Mongolians drink fermented mare's milk that makes you trip. Like, like, like we seem to be like driven, at least our indigenous cultures everywhere to have these altered state experiences. Right. How important are those in both in human development uh, and you know, are those an important or a meaningful part of, of like neurology or the spiritual side of, of the things that you've studied with these people? Like, just kind of walk me through your thoughts on that. I mean, I think we have, um, I think they have actually incredible potential. Um, you know, I mean, I would start by saying that, that the way that these substances are used is, um, that they're considered sacred. And Absolutely. This is, I think, really important because you know, a lot of the a lot of the plants that um, you know the way we interact with plants has been fraught, you know, especially in Western culture. Um, for instance, you know the the way that that um, North Americans are referred to um, in South America um, that I heard several times was um, we're junkies, and. <laughs> 
And um, they mean that in many ways, not just, you know, in the way that, you know, we might think of it here. But the idea is that we kind of like want to use these things and kind of take, take, take. And in those cultures, the idea is that it's a it's a relationship and it's an alliance and that it's sacred. So like you might think about the way we use um, something like like uh, the, the poppy plant. Right. Or or um, the coca plant is a great example. Like when I was in Ecuador, it's very common for people when they're going to high altitude or in the morning for good energy, they chew coca leaves or make a coca tea. And um, it's actually incredibly effective. Um, for I, I used it. Yeah. yeah when, uh, certainly mate de coca. I, I was actually sad I couldn't bring some back. Actually, I might have accidentally brought some back and found <laughs> it a month later in my pocket. Sorry about that. I, uh, I used it after, so I don't have it anymore. But like, like yeah, it, and it, it really did help with altitude sickness. But, but I know what you're saying. Like, like you get these old people there who've gone out and hand harvested this stuff. And they typically are older um, who will, will then like they're, they're selling it in the market for relatively small amounts of money. But it's not like an industrial process. Whereas here, like, let me just snort some white powder that came from the same thing. Right. But see, that's the point is that we go instead of that, instead of having a respect for the plant and using it yeah. in, in the way that sort of at, uh, honoring what it has and sort of what we call master plants. Right. Um, mm. In in you know plant medicine these certain plants are very powerful coffee is a master plant tobacco is a master plant yeah. coca is a master plant and so on you know that when we try to purify it and take the power from that plant in a way that's not respectful that plant can destroy you and i think like from a spiritual standpoint because we don't have a good spiritual vocabulary you know when we're talking about these kinds of things in north america um, you know and in western culture overall you know, we don't really understand that, that these plants are powerful and they actually can control you. I like to talk about grass and I mean like the kind that grows in our lawns, right? Like how, who, how many hours do most people spend if they have a house maintaining a, their lawn, right? Basically grass owns us. We sit, we mow <laughs> it, we do everything to make, so, so this one monoculture species can be happy and we'll do anything to make that happen waste water, the whole thing. It, it literally controls us in a certain way. And that when we talk about these kinds of plants, even more so. So um, I think, you know, the first point to make is just that um, these people are walking into this relationship from literally childhood, knowing that these plants are sacred plants and that they're powerful. Um, but I do think they have incredible, incredible benefit. And we're seeing that actually in many scientific studies looking at substance abuse, believe it or not, right? As well as anxiety and OCD and, and depression that's not responsive to treatment. Um, we have really beautiful studies on many of these things for everything from, um, you know, microdosing of LSD to ayahuasca to psilocybin, which is, you know, in the magic mushrooms. Um, so there's, there's really a lot, I think, um, of potential if we go into the relationship in the right way. People might think I'm a little bit crazy here, but I'll tell you, you know, I've spent my time in Tibet and shamanic training with Alberto Viotto and various other strange things. Uh, we grow, when I'm at home, uh, we grow pretty much all of our own food. Every now and then we get stuff from neighbors' farms and things like that. But uh, in midwinter, I might buy cucumbers from somewhere else, whatever. But uh, I would say 90% of our food comes from our own garden. But when I'm picking like the herbs that I, I eat every day, I actually say thank you to the plant before I strip its babies off of it and eat them. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming the plant doesn't really like that, but I don't, you know, th it's going to have to cope. 
But the idea is expressing gratitude towards the thing that made your food, it certainly doesn't cost me anything. I know quantitatively the value of a gratitude practice. So you can be like, ah, I didn't think or I wasn't mindful when I harvested my herb or my fennel or whatever the heck I'm eating right now. Or I, I could just say thank you every now and then before I, I pluck the thing off and eat it. Uh, and I, I actually think that, that whether or not the plant knows is entirely debatable. <laughs> but whether I know that, that it was good for me to do that, I, I think it is. And, and that is more of a, uh, I would say more of an indigenous traditional perspective. But there's nothing that says everyone listening, when you're, you're looking at some amazing food on your plate, it came from plants. Whether or not it's, it's a piece of lamb or a piece of fish, it came from a plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's how it, it, it is. And by the way, the plants came from animals. Because plants eat dead animals, and that's just kind of how it works. <laughs> including, so. including dead humans. So that's, yep. uh, that's part of the cycle of life. I like to point that out. <laughs> so so if it, I, I apologize to all of the vegans who didn't want killing to happen. Some animal died for your plant to live. That is simply how the world works. So yikes, you're going to have to be a gravel-tarian, uh, which I have not made work for myself, but I'm open to the idea. Because uh, no one, nothing dies to make gravel. Uh, so what should those of us listening who are interested in a, a spiritual practice or, or what are some options that, that you might recommend? I mean, should, should more people be microdosing? Should people be traveling to Peru and Ecuador and, and once in a lifetime, like I did 20 years ago, you know, doing ayahuasca in a traditional ceremony? Uh, should they be joining a drumming circle in order to be more connected to nature? Like, like what are our options here? And like, what's, you know, I, I was very fortunate to be able to do this as a young man, but for a lot of people traveling to another country to, you know, go out of the jungle and do weird stuff, it, it's a pretty big commitment and it may just not happen because you have a job and kids and it's just not financially realistic. Like, what are my options in the U.S.? Well, I'll say this. I mean, I think that, you know, as someone who's traveled to, you know, the jungle yeah. and kind of, seen and, and experienced some of the things that are, that are, you know, practiced there. I think that, um, the people that, that there's a, a certain sense that, you know, um, you know, if it's the right thing for you. <laughs> and most of the people that, that I've encountered, you know, might've kind of moved heaven and earth, um, to get there because yeah. they needed it and they knew they needed that. So, Um, I think, you know, definitely start with what you have right here. You don't have to go traveling for it. I think that that's almost always true, that the things you need are are nearby. What does that mean, start with what you have right here? Are you saying start a spiritual practice? Are you saying, like, call the neighborhood drug dealer? (laughs) What what does that mean? No, I don't. I mean... (laughs) I know you're a doctor. You have a license, but, you know... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in terms of a spiritual practice that just simply, like, you know, that there are basic things. And I think having a connection with, with plants is, is a, a basic kind of critical um, foundation for any other kind of practice that you're going to have relating to plants. So, you know, I, I go into the woods every day. I live in New York City, actually. I live right near a park that has forest. Um, I feel very blessed to have that. And I express a lot of gratitude. I feel many times a day for that. Um, by the way, Dave, you know, I don't know if you've read The Hidden Life of Trees, but there are some really beautiful books about uh, plant intelligence, and it's like mind-blowing. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, let's just endorse that. So if you're listening to this and you want your mind blown, uh, The Hidden Life <laughs> of Trees, like if you think it's okay to eat plants and that they don't know it, oh my God, you have no idea what these plants are doing for each other and to each other and how they pass knowledge from one generation to another, it, it'll blow your mind. Also... 
Um, the reason I read that book is that my wife, who does more of our, our managing the organic farm than I do, given that I'm managing Bulletproof, which is its own big food operation uh, in terms of just you know do, doing something that's worth doing there. Um, she read the book, was like, you have to read this. And, and I was like, okay, this completely blows my mind. And then literally two weeks later, the New York Times best-selling monthly list for science books, not for advice books, came out. And this book was on the list. And so was Headstrong, which was like the hugest thing ever. Like I just sat down. I was like, wow. And Lana looked at the list. She's like, oh, my God. Like Headstrong hit the list with like six of my favorite books of the year, including The Hidden Life of Trees. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I shared the list with the book uh, for one, uh, one month. Um, it, yeah. But I, I have to tell people, read that book. If, if, if you really want to know what's going on on your plate, uh, it'll, it'll change your perspective. And it'll also mean that when you see a clear-cut forest, it actually will make you mad. There's no excuse for us doing that. Yeah. It's okay to take some trees, but leave some other ones because they'll talk to the new ones. And we're reforesting parts of our property that should have never been cleared. Um, and it takes 30 years, only if you make the right microclimates to do that. So we've made the right microclimates. And 30 years from now, we'll have an actual forest versus just a monocrop of trees, which is what's happening in most of the world. So like, like when you realize the, the vast intelligence of the planet that way, like, wow. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox there, but you got to read that book. So yeah. where are you going it's with fantastic. that? It's <laughs> fantastic. I was going with the idea that, um, you know, when you spend time in a forest or in a place that, you know, where you're surrounded by plants, it actually is the beginning of a spiritual practice. There's actually, in fact, like you've probably heard of this, right? The uh, Japanese practice of Shinrin-yoku, which is translated to forest bathing where you know you go and immerse yourself in the beauty of the forest and it's it's actually like a cultural practice and a spiritual practice as well and there are all these science studies basically that show all these health benefits because it's practiced so widely so it lowers cortisol levels it boosts anti-cancer proteins and natural killer cells it improves focus and concentration and executive function so there's all these incredible benefits that we measure but at the same time you're really connecting in a spiritual way with the natural world. And I think like, these are like the most basic things we can be doing um, to start that spiritual practice. And sometimes that's all you need. You don't need to do anything different and exotic. Um, but then beyond that, you know, the next kind of piece I think is, um, you know, for me, like I grow, I grow certain plants and, you know, spend time with plants in that way. Like, kind of having that experience and then you know you can what take does that it mean another... are, are, do you have a little pot farm in there is that what you're saying no no <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> certain plants i was just wondering er, an herb garden you mean um yeah something <laughs> like that so um so so no but you know the point is that you have that you have this contact yeah. with different with different kinds of plants before you ever make the step of considering ingesting them or, or whatever it may be. Um, but I do think that we are learning that these master plants, whether it be coffee, whether it be cannabis, whether it be something like, you know, uh, ayahuasca or San Pedro or those kinds of things all have incredible, um, healing potential. And you know what it's going to, what it's going to be this kind of balance of how do we, how do we incorporate those things into our healing practices without um, trying to industrialize them yeah. or 
take away from the sacred practices um, because that's really, I think, what makes them so healing. I, I was recently in a, in a really remote part of, of the Pacific Northwest and had an opportunity to ingest a, a plant medicine. And it was really interesting because it's not just even about healing. It also is about enhancing the, the capabilities that you have. For, for instance, and I've noticed this multiple times, with the right plant medicine, you can see stuff that isn't readily apparent. I don't mean like, oh, look, there's a unicorn and a bunny in front of me floating. I don't mean that at all. For instance, I could look at a hillside on, on a substance and your visual acuity goes way up. You can see like leaves across across the valley. Like, like you can see details that weren't, weren't apparent. And one thing that popped out, I'm like, oh, look, on the side of that mountain that looked just like a forest before I was on this substance, I could spot exactly where the streams were. Like you could see the veins on the side of the mountain. And going, oh, like if I wanted to find water, it's just right there when you know how to look for it. But without uh, without the enhanced senses that come from some of these things, uh, you just you aren't there. And I imagine if you lived in that environment all the time, you it would be apparent to you without a plant medicine sort of helping you. So so there are times when you are more perceptive, but perhaps also more vulnerable in other ways. I mean, is there a downside to these plant medicines? I mean, do some people kind of have ayahuasca experiences that that are not psychologically beneficial as well, things like that. Well, I mean, it's definitely contraindicated in a number of people with various kinds of health problems. And in many cases, even, you know, if they have a psychiatric history and certainly if they're on particular ph pharmaceutical medications, right? So there's that whole kind of category where it's really contraindicated. Um, and then, you know, the way people describe ayahuasca is 10 years of therapy in five hours. I would say that is probably an uh, accurate kind of yeah. evaluation. And I think for, for some people, um, they're not ready for that. And that's, you know, or, or they don't want to engage in that. And if that happens, you know, it, it could be traumatic. And for some people, they're not going to have, you know, feel positive about that experience. Um, even though, you know, the indigenous cultures that practice this kind of sacred medicine, um, you know, believe and I, you know, and I believe that the plant is, you know, giving you the medicine that you need. Um, but if you're not receptive to that, then it's going to, it's not going to be a good experience and it's definitely not, um, useful or worthwhile, um, for someone who's not going to take it and, and want to integrate it. There's also, you may go do ayahuasca with someone who's untrustworthy and untrained in it, and it may result in needing another yeah. 10 years of therapy because you can have a, a really bad experience. Like I, When I went down to do ayahuasca, this was 20 years ago in Peru, and this isn't something that you did back then. So I, I went to, to the guest house where I was staying and said, I want to do this. And, and they're like, what? And I said, ayahuasca, you know, trying to spell it differently. And they looked at me, they're like, but you're white. I'm like, yes, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that I'm white. And they said, and you'll throw up. Like, like only the medicine people do that. Like, why would, why would anyone want to do that, much less you? And like, no, really, I, I do. And, and it took him like two days to find the right medicine man who was, you know, uh, willing and able to work with me and to set up a ceremony the way I wanted to do it. And it was, it was I felt called to do it. I've been wanting to, to, to do it for a long time because I'd done my research and, you know, I, I was fortunate. Just like you're saying, like I was ready for it. Um, but I... I'm greatly concerned that when you land in Cusco right now, there's like a line of people saying, "I right, we'll do an ayahuasca ceremony. You know, it's 25 bucks and you know, we'll take you up there and you know, put the stuff in your mouth. And uh, I think that's risky. <laughs> like it's highly risky. It is. 
It is. It is. And I think it's really important to say that. I mean, that there's actually um, a very in-depth preparation process um, that involves things like changing your diet significantly for most people, you know, everything from, you know, no meat to no fermented foods to no avocados to, you know, minimal salt. I mean, you know, to no sexual relations to right the whole gamut, this whole uh, number of things, obviously being off of pharmaceuticals, really not interacting with alcohol or other kinds of, you know, mind altering substances. So it, it's something you have to really prepare for um, and take care of yourself afterwards as well. And as you say, to really um, know and trust, you know, any person that you're going to be with, because it's a very vulnerable experience yeah. and it could be, and it can be dangerous if it's not done properly. I mean, what we're talking about is the pitfalls, even if you, it's all done properly and you're supported well and all those things. But obviously the, the biggest concern and the biggest pitfall is that people want to make money off of, you know, sort of, um, you know, outsiders or, or, you know, sort of ayahuasca tourists or whatever you want to call it, who are, who are not really able to, um, differentiate between, you know, a good authentic experience and, um, someone who might want to take advantage and is going to do sloppy work. So I, I would say that the, the summary of that is if you decide to do something like this is, it's not something to be undertaken lightly. It's not recreational, and uh, you should know who you're doing it with, and you should vet them carefully. Uh, now, it it's. I do know people have had some some pretty bad experiences from it. Sort of had to to pick themselves up. In North America, most of the stuff is just illegal. But I, I've interviewed a, a substantial number of people who sort of believe that they're going to do all of their healing work, all their personal development work, or even progress to enlightenment or you know, be in a flow state using uh, entheogens or hallucinogens or whatever else this is, uh, kind of as the primary tool. Yet there's a whole bunch mm -hmm. of other indigenous practices, including ones that shamans do in, in Chinese medicine, people breathing meditation, yoga, exercises, tai chi, uh, and, and the whole side of it that isn't necessarily plant-based, but is, is awareness-based and is a core part of a, a spiritual practice. You're a neurologist. Like you look at children's development, you look at adult development, and, and have a, a very interesting perspective on all this. What's, how, does, how do you know whether going to yoga class and doing some you know, pranayama every day is the right beginnings to a spiritual path versus like, I'm going to go you know, do something big. Like, like, I'm sure there are people listening going, should I? Well, I mean, I think that the key is, like I said, that you have to start with a foundation. And, and in indigenous communities, um, and I think in most people I've seen who are successfully maintaining, um, you know, their physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health in ways that, to me, like I would assess to be, um, you know, optimal or ideal, you don't, you don't, you, you have to start with the foundations, like, you know, eating well, being connected with your environment, right? Like what I learned in the indigenous communities that I have worked with. And I think it's really, it was really powerful to me is physical sickness in, is actually something very downstream and all of your health of all your bodies, right? Begins with being in good relations with yourself, with the people around you and with your place. So to me, like having having those basic practices of, of taking care of yourself and your community and um, the place where you are 
are actually the very foundational um, parts of a, even a spiritual practice. Um, and then, you know, you can think about kind of bigger things if you feel you need that and you feel called to that. Um, but I do think that like when we look at things like pranayama breathing, for instance, you know, I teach that to my patients, including little kids, um, <laughs> because it's actually there are certain ones that are very stimulating to the vagus nerve, which lowers inflammation in the body. It lowers their risk of having seizures or migraines or other things like that. So, uh, oh, hold, you know, hold on. It, we we got to pause right there. Yeah. A okay. vagal nerve <laughs> stimulating breathing practice. You don't have to just teach this to uh, to children all that. Why don't you just kind of teach everyone listening right now? So, all right, you go to bulletproof.com slash YouTube. That'll provide you like the quick link to this episode on YouTube so you, people can watch the video. But like walk, walk me through it. Do it verbally so people driving understand what it is. Like, like give us the basics. Like I, I, want, I want to upgrade my vagus nerve. <laughs> I, I actually learned this from um, one of my uh, teachers, uh, Andy Weil. Oh, um, and he lives one island over from me. That's cool. All right. Yeah. 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 So, and you know, it's a, it's a form of pranayama that's very, so it happens to be very calming and very stimulating to, to the vagus nerve. And it's basically, um, you put both feet on the ground um, without crossing anything, not crossing your arms, no crossing your legs. You rest your, your tongue, the tip of your tongue gently on the um, junction between your heart, your palate and your upper teeth, just gently. Um, and you leave it there for the whole practice. And breathe in through your nose for four counts. Uh, eyes open or closed? Either. Okay, so breathe in through four counts. Breathe in for four counts. Hold the breath for seven counts and let it whoosh out of your mouth for eight counts. And you repeat it four times. So in for four. In for four. Hold for seven. And out for eight through your mouth with your tongue still in the position. And you do that four times. You do that four times. And if you do that as a regular practice, you know, let's say at least two times a day, and you can do it more times if you want, um, you will actually feel your body completely relax. And when you've stimulated your vagus nerve, you're also, right, you're lowering your heart rate, you're improving your digestion, because you're stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest. You're lowering your, you know, cortisol release, so fewer stress hormones going through your body. Um, and you actually, because the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system um, modulates inflammation, you're actually lowering your inflammatory levels in your body whenever you're stimulating your vagus nerve. And pranayama is such a beautiful and non-invasive way to do that. And even children can pick that up. And certainly I practice it every day. A proper time of day to do this? When you first wake up, when you go to bed, when you're at a stoplight? I like what's the... What's best? I think, you know, I'm someone because I, I work, I'm a mom, like there's too many things going on for me to have the perfect time of day. So I think getting it in is the most important thing and just making it a regular practice. And whenever is a good time is it, you know, for you is the right time. So I do it actually when I wake up very often. I also like to have it available to me when I feel stressed out and my body, I'm like Pavlov's dog, right? Like I start doing that breathing and the first 
four seconds, I'm already, I feel my whole body relax. I feel my whole body differently because my brain and my body are so attuned to that practice because it's been a regular practice. So I don't think time of day necessarily matters. Got it. So there you go. You just educated like hundreds of thousands of people on this new kind of breath. Now, when you're breathing through your nose, is it supposed to be an ujjayi breath or a regular breath? Does it matter? Um, I do basically just... A regular one? Yeah, I mean, it has to be, it does have to be relatively full, okay, right? Full because breath. you're breathing in four counts, but you have to breathe out for double that. So you need to take in enough air to be able to push it out for the full eight. And, you know, it makes sense, right? Because when we're anxious, we're breathing in a very shallow and rapid way. This basically forces us to breathe slowly and deeply. Awesome. And I, the thing I just mentioned in Ujjayi breath, U-J-A-Y, uh, for people listening, if you haven't heard of that, you can, you can Google for how to do it. Maybe, actually, I might. One of the headstrong bonus things, I might have, I, I somehow, I did a, a teaching on this a long time ago, but I couldn't tell you how to find it right now. Maybe we'll get that in the show notes. But it's, a, it's another kind of breathing where you put your tongue in the same place, but you sort of make it sound like a seashell in the back of your nose. Any good yoga teacher is going to be able to teach you an ujjayi breath. And it's something that can just knock you out. If you can't go to sleep, you do the ujjayi breath 10 times. Mm -hmm. You'll probably fall asleep even if you have racing thoughts. They'll go away. Uh, and a lot of the techniques you just, like when you just taught us, uh, they call for that kind of a breath. I wasn't sure if you were cutting that out because it was uh, it was too complex to explain or whether it just isn't necessary. <laughs> so, awesome. Well, that was that's pretty cool. And all right, so maybe that's a, a place for people to start who have no particular practice. So you could just do a breathing exercise like this. I'm like, all right, now I'm doing something that didn't take a lot of time, something that I can do during brief uh, pauses during my day. I've done probably tens of thousands of breathing exercises at stoplights. And now that my commute is pretty much through my garden uh, from my house to my studio, uh, that means that I don't really get the same sort of yeah. mindful time uh, when I'm driving. Uh, but I, I would encourage you, if you're sitting there, you got nothing else to do, well, the, the previews are coming on at the movie theater. Like there's all kinds of times when you can choose to do something like this if you just make it into habit. And it, it's a valuable thing. It doesn't require hallucinogens. It doesn't require a trip to Ecuador or Peru or anywhere else funny, uh, but it, it actually does start to shift the needle, which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Now, if, yeah. if you do that and you rub yourself in mud first to get the microbes, is it better? Um, I always think a little rubbing in mud is gonna be fantastic. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not gonna get me to say no to that or go hug a, or go hug a tree. I actually, We'll occasionally do Facebook Lives with my Tree Hugging Tuesday. So, nice. you know, going out there and just actually, I feel like if people see a neurologist willing to do that, like maybe they'll try to. And, uh, you know, that's another thing I think in an urban environment, you just have to be careful of the dog pee at the bottom of the tree, mm -hmm. but then go throw your arms around a tree. And I think it's a good physical practice. You share your microbiome with that tree back and forth and, and, uh, I think also it is uh, very grounding and, and a beautiful spiritual practice. It, it's kind of funny. The type of tree you hug matters. Uh, where I live, uh, there are certain cedar trees. You hug that tree, you're going to need new clothes. Uh, in the desert where <laughs> I grew up, you hug a mesquite tree, you're going to need some Band-Aids because they're covered in thorns. <laughs> but one of the, the shamans that I did some work with a while ago had mesquite trees growing in her uh, in her area like around her place and was like I don't like it that they're covered in thorns so she went out 
every day and meditated for a few minutes with her mesquite trees. And in a year, they all drop their thorns. And she has thornless mesquite trees in areas where she wanted them. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool. I saw the trees. I don't know anywhere else that there's thornless mesquite like that. But the ones uh-huh. that weren't uh, meditated around certainly had thorns like any desert mesquite would. I was, uh, I was pretty impressed. Uh, so who knows? The trees well, might be listening. I've seen many, I've seen many, many interesting things like that. But um, I will also say that in Ecuador, the shamans that I've studied with believe that using things like stinging nettles, um, which for those of you who don't know, is a, is a wild plant that actually brings out welts on your body, painful and itchy welts, um, is that the appropriate way to, they make a brush of stinging nettles and, and brush you, brush your body with it. Um, and they use it on children because they feel it's a way to actually physically and spiritually protect them and help them become stronger. And um, I actually did watch um, one of one of the uh, children be cleaned with the with the stinging nettles and and develop welts all over her face, which then went away soon after. But um, it was very fascinating. So in some cases, the shamans actually want to utilize that. Um, painful aspect of the plant. We, we actually do. I would tell the kids, look, if you don't behave yourselves, we're putting stinging nettles in your bed. No, <laughs> but more, more truthfully, my uh, my wife grew up in the old Czechoslovakia, uh, and I say Czechoslovakia because that's what it was called when she grew up there, not the Czech Republic, which is what it's called now. But yeah. uh, her grandfather and grandmother every uh, every spring would go out and get stinging nettles and rub them up and down their arms because they're like it stops allergies. And we actually do that, including with my kids. And I've, I've done a, I don't know if it was a Facebook Live, but certainly I posted videos where like every spring, like my forearms are covered in welts because I go out there and brush them and the kids do the same thing. And we don't brush them. We just tell the kids like, you can do it and it makes you stronger. And like, okay, you know, and it's neat to watch, you know, a five-year-old or a six-year-old go, all right, I'm going to do this. And if, if you've yeah. never experienced seeing nails, like, oh my God, what is this? They're little tiny micro hairs. They have something called oxalic acid that if you ingest it is pretty bad for you. But in the skin, it just causes a histamine response and release. So you get these brief, like little red welts. They sting for a couple hours, not in a horrible way, but kind of an itchy mosquito bite way. And then they're just gone. And you realize, okay, I didn't die. Uh, it wasn't even that uncomfortable, but it, it actually does build character toughness and probably has some biological effects that we're still figuring out. So I, I, I practice this regularly. I have a good one for you, Dave, and I bet you're going to be doing this with me next spring. All right. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but um, taking the sprouts of poison ivy. Oh, that sounds evil. All right. The sprouts and making a tea from them ah. when they're really. Yeah. Yes. Uh. And. And drinking that tea actually is protective against getting poison ivy. Um, and a lot of wow. plant people actually will do that. All right. On the West Coast here, we don't have poison ivy. We have poison oak. Right. And that stuff is poison. just mean. Like, like if you mm-hmm. burn it and breathe the smoke, you might need to go to the hospital because it's so toxic. Does that work with poison oak too? Well, I don't know, don't but try. I'll get back. Don't try that. Just for anyone listening. <laughs> like there's a difference in poison oak and poison ivy. I would not recommend poison oak unless unless someone has vetted this before you or you have epinephrine and be ready to go to the hospital. Well, <laughs> but poison ivy maybe. I don't, recommend, I don't recommend doing the poison ivy thing either okay. except for crazy people like us. Yeah, or or with, with an herbalist. <laughs> like if you're going with someone who knows what they're doing, but if you get too much or pick the wrong stuff, um, it is the vast majority of plants out there will kill you. Uh, like I, I remember when we had a. I I feel like I would take issue with that, but I don't think the vast majority of plants. But I would say would you eat them? there are <laughs> there. 
Yes. Okay. I would say there are plants out there that could kill you. And if you don't know yeah. what you're doing, then you could screw up and get really sick or die. But it doesn't mean that the vast majority of them could kill you. Um, I, I suppose that it's a question of dose and all, all those things. But I remember my, my daughter when she was three, we taught her, go into the garden and there, these are the plants you can pull off any of the herbs and eat them and they're good. And so she'd walk around oregano. And one day she's like, yum. And she pulled some uh, some leaves off the squash plant and ate them and had like the world's worst bloating and gas for, for a while. Because plants have defense systems and there are plants that are good to eat and plants that aren't good to eat and plants that a sheep can eat that we can't eat and, and things like that. Absolutely. But like plants do cover themselves in chemicals to prevent themselves from being overpredated. And if uh, poison ivy is a good example of that. So if you uh, if you overdo that, you might not like what happens. But poison ivy probably won't kill you unless you just can't breathe. So. Well, you know, I will say um, I will say that you know when we're talking about phytonutrients, right? Like we're talking about all the terpenes and the oxalates and the you know all the different kinds of antioxidants. Really, what we're usually talking about um, in fruits and vegetables, those are actually the plant's immune system mm -hmm. and the plant's defense system. And, and having those kinds of predators actually is what triggers those plants to produce more and more of those, which is why wild plants are so incredibly nutrient dense. Mm -hmm. um, so those stressors are actually boosting the plant's immune system. And those are the things that actually then come into our body, act as small poisons in a certain way, because they are in a very small way toxic to us. Yep. And make us kind of up our game. So it's all like really this very cool cycle. It, it's incredible when, when you think about it. And if you wonder what was the difference between organic blueberries and wild blueberries, mm. <laughs> if you measure yeah. them for their polyphenol count and things like that, there's a huge difference. And it's, it's that yeah. predation thing. And so introducing enough stress into your life to cause you to get stronger is important. Introducing <laughs> enough stress into your plant's life to make your plant stronger so when you eat it, you'll be stronger is also important. Right. And this is one of the concerns with modern agriculture. Oh, it's organic. Yeah, but it was like organic, you know, grown in a place with no natural stuff around it, even though it's organic, it's not gonna make the stuff that you're supposed to get from those plants. And it's a, it, it's a of concern when we look at growing everything in you know, these vertical gardens and things like that. Like, where's the stress coming from? Because it's gotta be the right stress. Right, but it's certainly, you know, when we're when we're applying things like you know, sort of the most toxic kinds of pesticides, and we're getting rid of all the microbes in the soil and getting rid of all the pests, it actually, um, you know, conventional farming, I think, is the lowest in those phytonutrients. Mm -hmm. Organic farming certainly yeah. has has better, and biodynamic is probably even better, yeah, and wild is, yeah. is the best. Yep. So... Uh, and you mentioned biodynamic, which is really cool. Uh, Dr. Mercola was just over here uh, at actually the day before we recorded this over here at my house and uh, he's doing biodynamic. Our garden is mostly biodynamic and this is the next standard beyond uh, beyond organic where you're planting with the cycles of the moon and you're enriching the soil in a way that isn't required in organic farming in order to increase yield. So it's, it's fascinating what can be done, but then you look also mm -hmm. at, at what's probably on your plate unless you're buying at the farmer's market or you know what you're doing or maybe paying 20% more for your vegetables because you know the name of the person who grew them and because you knew that they cared enough to, to take these things. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly concerned for the health of the plants that we eat because it's not enough to say I ate plants. I ate the yeah. right plants that had the right environment so that they would send my body to the environmental signal that's best for me. 
it's a tough thing and you'll never know for sure you did it right, but you'll know, wow, I felt really good when I ate those and I didn't feel so good when I ate those other ones. So that's amazing. Pick the food that makes you feel good. Shocking, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a, a fascinating and fun conversation. It's not so often that, that anyone gets to hear from a neurologist who's traveled to indigenous cultures and, uh, and, and learned about those as well and focused so much on microbes instead of just nerves. Uh, so thank you for for having just a diverse set of interests and tying them back into your well-grounded Western medical knowledge, uh, which is something that that's oftentimes lacking. So you've kind of got a foot in both worlds, which is which is admirable and cool. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, "Look, based on all this stuff you know, all the things you've experienced, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being. What are the three most important things I need to know? What would you tell them?" Um, I would say. Number one is going to be um, the food you eat, right? So nutrient-dense food that is as unprocessed as possible, um, coming from, you know, the right environment, as you say. So eat Pop-Tarts, got uh, it. <laughs> no, organic Pop-Tarts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, the second would be um, getting outside into nature. Okay. I think that's absolutely critical. Um, and that can be, oops, that can be in any number of ways. And the third, um, would be actually, I think having, um, a spiritual practice. I think that that's critically important. And, you know, my spiritual practice is very, you know, in most cases, very connected to the natural world, but I think whatever spiritual practice speaks to you, just doing something in it, having a discipline around it is, uh, I think those are the three optimal ways to live and function. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Maya. In fact, just for people who want to hear your full name, Dr. Maya Shatrit Klein, and people can find you if they Google for The Dirt Cure, which is probably the easiest way to come across you. That's the name of, of your book oh. uh, that's done very, very well, where you talk about microbes and all. Uh, I really appreciate you being on Bulletproof Radio. Is there anywhere else people can go to find more info about what you're up to, to learn more? Sure. They can come to my website, uh, drmaya, D-R-M-A-Y-A.com. And uh, all the information about everything I'm doing and courses I'm teaching and, you know, trainings I'm doing are all there. Beautiful. Well, thanks for spending time on Bulletproof Radio today. Have a beautiful day and go hug a tree. <laughs> if you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Head on out there and pick up a copy of Dr. Maya's book or read The Hidden Life of Trees, which is awesome. Or if you haven't read it yet, you could read Headstrong. There's some good stuff in there as well. And if you read any book that's worth your time, the number one thing you can do to express gratitude and just to make your own life better, go to Amazon and leave a review for the author. Because authors like Dr. Maya and me, we spend thousands and thousands of hours compressing what we know into about four hours of read time for you. And if it was worth your time to do that, if you say thanks in the form of a five-star review or four stars, however many stars you're supposed to get, I don't know, lots of them, and then leave two sentences that says whether the book is worth your time. It helps other people know it was worth their time. So book reviews matter enormously to authors, and I'd be grateful if you'd go out there and leave a review for any book you've read that was awesome. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.